0: Language has that power to either empower us or
1: to
0: humiliate us. Looking at our language and the way that we teach is a really big way to bring in accessibility and let students feel empowered to make a choice about their practice, you know, rather than like, oh, I feel like a loser because I can't make the shape the teacher is saying to make. You know, we can give them different places to opt in or to work, and that can really make a difference for people. Hey everybody, welcome to the Yoga For All podcast. I'm Amber Carnes and I'm here with Diane Bondi. And oh good <laughs> to see you, Diane. We are today gonna talk about What does it mean to be accessible? I think accessible and accessible yoga is sort of like a buzzword in our industry right now. Um, But I uh, have seen like many things from many people. So I want to talk about all the ways that it means to be an accessible yoga teacher or what an accessible yoga class or studio really is. And Diane and I both have a lot to say on this subject, so we're just going to jump right in. I think that usually when people say accessible or accessibility, folks have an idea that that just means that folks in wheelchairs can access it, right? Like that's the reaction that I get a lot of times is like, oh, accessible yoga, you mean like yoga for you know people that use wheelchairs or disabled folks? While that is one aspect of accessibility, it's definitely not the only uh, meaning behind accessibility. So maybe we'll just address that first, that accessibility can mean uh, the physical space, right? So can someone who uses a wheelchair or a mobility device actually like get into your studio or your classroom, wherever you may be? You know, other concerns about physical space, like Is there seating that will accommodate everyone, right? Like if you have folks in larger bodies, do you have chairs that don't have arms? Do you have like sturdy seating that's going to work in your um, studio or your space or your classroom? Physical space is definitely one aspect of it, but there are a lot of other ways that accessibility shows up. Maybe the next thing we can talk about, Diane, is financial accessibility because that's an important aspect.
1: That's huge. And um, when I owned my studio 100 years ago, it feels like 100 years ago. I remember looking at all the pricing of yoga offered in my community and deciding where I wanted to fit in that model. I find it's it's a kind of a tricky thing to do because as a studio owner, yeah, you need to charge a certain amount of money so you can keep the doors open. But what does that mean for people who it might be the difference between coming to class and paying for something they really need, or being uncomfortable going into a certain neighborhood, often where yoga studios are. So let's just be honest, yoga studios are, you know, usually placed in affluent areas that might not be close to places that are in lower, lower income areas. And that becomes an issue that do I want to sit on two or three buses to get out to this yoga studio. So that's another issue for accessibility. For me, I tried to, uh, I tried to put it out there that anybody could come to the studio and I would work with anybody. I also put my studio in a uh, lower income neighborhood. I put it on a bus line. I remember I had another studio owner, her and I were friends, uh, come up to me and say, you know, if you would just move your studio three kilometers up the street, uh, you would have a whole different set of clientele. You could actually have people who, who can pay you. And I just was like, once again, that's not my ministry. There's already a yoga studio up there taking all the rich people's money. And that's great. But what about the rest of us? So financial accessibility is a tough one. And what I often would do is for me personally as a teacher I would teach a lot of private classes so that I could teach a lot of public free classes and I always offered a class on the studio that was donation in a prime time space on the schedule so it might not be prime time every night but there was one free class in the studio that was in prime time or a donation class at the very least and then when it was a donation class donate whatever you wanted so for me in the studio space it was you could donate your time uh, we often did uh, donations for for homeless and the women's shelter and all that kind of stuff. So you could donate anything that you had that you wanted to donate. Uh, you could be the person who, to take the stuff to the donation site. So I've really made to try to find out a number of ways in which if the yoga wasn't financially accessible, that you could somehow feel like you were contributing in a way. Um, I also found that making it accessible or the pricing accessible, sometimes people who didn't need accessible pricing would take advantage of that. And I found that that was disheartening Um, because I still did get the affluent people come out and not want to pay me. And I found that was difficult because the money that I was making was also being able to find me doing free yoga classes in the park, which I do often in the summer or donation-based class in the park or just putting that free class on the schedule. The other thing that you got to watch if you're going to offer a free donation class on the schedule, you want to talk to your teachers who have experience and ask them to teach that class as opposed to asking somebody who's fresh out of yoga school who may not have the skills yet to teach to a diverse audience. So you want to have somebody in there that, you know, people would pay money to come see so that we're not minimizing that free class as something that's less than a regular everyday class that you would pay money for. So it still has to be on par with all those things. So, you know, I found that was one of the biggest barriers to people coming to yoga. And my way of dealing with it, or my tip with dealing with it, was also offering yoga in unconventional spaces, also going to places and offering free yoga. And a lot of my privates for me paid for those classes for me to be able to go and do yoga free other places. So
0: yeah, I think those are some really um, brilliant ideas. Um, I have a few others that I want to mention. And First, just to address what you just said, is basically like you charge more for certain services so that you could have the, you know, first of all, you have to sustain yourself. I think, especially for those of us that are, you know, teaching yoga full time, uh, whether we're teaching weekly classes, or we have a hybrid of things that we do, or like us, we have a lot of different sort of streams of revenue and things that, you know, some of those are going to be more and some of them are going to be less. And so basically the way that I like to think about it is, yes, I do charge more for some of my programs. I have a new program that's coming out soon that I'm going to charge, you know, a price that people you know, may react to, but basically like I have places for people to participate on all ends of the spectrum. Yes. So for people who can afford to pay more that want to participate in, you know, whatever particular program that allows me to sustain myself and my business and provides like so much more bandwidth for me to create like free work and free content and offer classes at donation-based or scholarship or whatever. And so I think that's a really important mindset to have. Um, I know it's something that I'm definitely working on personally is sort of like my mindset around money. In yoga, especially, we sort of um, shy away from talking about money or, you know, like feel guilty if we make money um, Mm -hmm. or that there's some sort of like virtue and being like poor Mm -hmm. and working in social justice. And so like, you yeah. know, and I even have my own, you know, thoughts around like, oh, like rich people are assholes. And right. it's like, well, I know poor people that are assholes too. So I, like, you know, yeah. there's these assumptions that we have to challenge. And one yeah. of the assumptions that I'm, you know, working on and in, in my own business is that like, the more that I'm successful in my business, the more I'm able to impact and have the, you know, the reach that I want to have for people who can't, um, you know, afford to like go on a retreat with me or yeah. take a teacher training or whatever. And so I think that's just a really
1: important thing to point out. And I'm glad you brought it up. You know um, what, also, I think about along with this, as a yoga teacher had once said to me, if you do not have money, you can only give of your time, right? And when you run out of time, you have nothing. So at least if you're sustaining yourself and you're able to make money in, the, uh, you know, teaching yoga, if you can't be available to be in some project, you can donate money to that project, and that that is also sustainable for that project. And I think there's this idea that there's some kind of nobility in poverty, and we all know that 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 impoverished people often aren't happy, don't have access to healthcare, don't have access to all the things they need. So we're not doing ourselves any favors by not allowing ourselves to make money at this. And if we could just think about money within this perspective as an exchange of energy, it's prana. It's an exchange of energy for what we're doing. And if we want to be able to keep the lights on and the studio open or be able to continue to teach, we have to we have to be able to sustain ourselves, which I think is super important. And I'd love it for us to figure out that we there is value in what we're doing. It's not sure. like you bought a $1,500 car and put a new coat of paint on it and now you're selling it for you know ten thousand dollars right we're we're giving people the opportunity to get to know themselves and to have a life you know hopefully a life-altering experience for themselves and that is that has value you have to remember that you have value and there you know I found that I got burnt out in yoga super quickly when I didn't value myself or sustain myself and then I just became kind of resentful and bitter that I was giving giving giving, giving, and not being replenished. Mm -hmm.
0: I wanted to mention a couple of other, um, like, financial accessibility ideas, and then maybe we can move on to another aspect of this. But um, one thing that I've been experimenting with is with each of my offerings. So I do online things and in-person things. Um, And with each of my offerings, making sure that I set aside A couple partial or even one full scholarship that I offer to community members who wouldn't be able to otherwise participate. So most people come in at a full price, but I have, you know, a little description in the, like the workshop or the training or whatever it is that says like part of my commitment is to like be aware of sort of the gatekeeping that happens around yoga industry and yoga teacher training and all of those things. And so part of those commitments for me is holding aside scholarships for folks and basically like folks with marginalized identities move to the front of the line. So the more sort of, let's say more marginalized that you are by society, like that, I usually have people apply. And this is, you know, what we do with our training too, Diane, is that, you know, folks can apply and tell us about like, the type of work that they want to do and um, how they plan to use the training or whatever, and um, talk a little bit about their financial situation. And then we can make a judgment as teachers of like what level they could come in at. And that's worked really well for me. I also um, have seen a lot of folks do it this way, where there are sort of three tiers that you can come in at. So for a workshop or a training or something like that, a conference, there's a like, sustainer rate, which is sort of, like, what it really costs, right, to buy a ticket. Then below that is sort of a subsidized rate. That's going to be, you know, maybe half price or something like that. And then above the, you know, at the top tier is the, like, sponsor rate. So if you can afford to pay a little bit more, you do. If you need assistance, then that's there, too. And so those are a couple of ways that I've um, found success with that. Like, free classes and donation-based and all that stuff, like, have their place. And the more sort of models that we can have of this, um, I think the more success that we can find. And so we encourage you to try some of these different techniques that we've talked about both uh, like what the weekly class things that Diane brought up and maybe some of these other techniques that I'm talking about. If you have, let's say like higher priced offerings. So um, anything you want to add about financial accessibility, Diane, or do you want to move on to some other stuff?
1: Don't be afraid to reach out to the studio owner or the teacher and ask if there's ways that you can contribute or you can kind of give back. We did a lot of uh, work study or um, stuff at my studio, which I was so helpful uh, to have somebody who actually really loved the studio and cared about the studio who could come in and just, you know, work the front desk or um, just do anything to help us out with the studio. So yeah, that's all I'm saying. Don't be afraid to approach a studio because often part of our work as studio owners and yoga teachers is to give back to the community and we're always looking for volunteer opportunities to give back. So don't be afraid to if you're in a financial place, maybe you're a student, whatever the case may be, but you really want to study here or you really want to practice there, you can always check out their website because often yoga studios will say, Hey, we have a a work study program. Come talk to us. And people are are, you know it's our job to be flexible. So it's kind of it's helpful um if we know that you're in a position to give back in another kind of way other than financial. We're always excited to to talk to you because we could always use the help. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm, definitely. Maybe we should talk about like what is an accessible yoga class. Yeah. Like not capital A accessible yoga like the organization, even right. though like shout out to accessible yoga. They're yeah. amazing. Yeah. And <laughs> Jeevana Heyman is the founder and Woo! I yeah. love this organization. I lead trainings for them. But what is like an accessible yoga class?
1: Are you using that word as a buzzword? Because I don't know about you, Amber, but when I've been going out to what people are calling accessible yoga classes, they're often not. You know,
0: the conversation in the yoga world is shifting. Like, think that Yoga Journal is mostly, like, irrelevant and they can kind of, like, die, but uh, die off, not the people. But, like, yeah, that yeah, yeah.
1: It's been irrelevant um, for a while. So. I think
0: they are kind of, like, a bellwether for our industry as far mm-hmm. as, like, when we see a trend, like, appear in Yoga Journal, then that means, like, yoga as a sort of, like – Industry and phenomenon in the West is like shifting as well. And so the fact that they are you know, increasingly, like, featuring folks like you or, like, Jessam and Stanley or, you know, um, I think Curvy Yoga was in there. Like, mm-hmm. that means that, you know, oh, and they just had a bunch of different covers with, like, different people on there. Like Really?
1: I don't read them, so I, I don't pay any attention to them. Well, I see them
0: on social media. So, but I just, I just say that to say, like, it is shifting. And so the effect on that is that I, I notice at a lot of studios that many classes or in their marketing, they're saying, like, All levels, all bodies, everyone is welcome, you know, all can come to this class. But then if you go to the class, like, can the teacher really deliver on that promise is the question. What I would like to say, first of all, is like, if that's you, if you're someone who, you know, is interested in making your classes accessible and you really have the heart to like, make sure that everyone who wants to participate in your class can, if you can't like accommodate folks who have disabilities, who are in larger bodies, if you're not really up on your learning with adaptive asana and things like that, it doesn't do anyone any favors to say everyone is welcome and then not provide an experience that feels like a yeah. successful you yes. know, experience and also a community experience, right? And And we've all probably done this as teachers, so my point is not to make you feel guilty, but just to give an example that like you know, when I was a student early in my yoga career and I would show up to a class, often it would be like, okay, we're all going to do this now and you can rest in child's pose. Or like, yeah. if you can't do yeah. this, just rest in child's pose. Like, that is not a cohesive That's not an accessible option. That's not an accessible option. It's and I, I think like also just the, ex- when we think of the experience that the student has, you know, showing up to a class where everyone else gets to do the quote unquote real yoga and then you have to just like do nothing, basically lay there because the teacher doesn't know how to work with you. Like it doesn't feel good as a student. And also you never blame the teacher. You always blame yourself, right? So most of the time as a student, they're not going to think like, oh, this teacher just didn't learn what she needed to in teacher training. It's not her fault. They're going to think my body's wrong. My body's messed up. I knew yoga wasn't for me and maybe they'll never come back. And so I think on the one hand, it's really important as teachers that we don't stop learning after we graduate from teacher training. The standards that are set for 200 hour teacher training are, you know, definitely not enough information for us to show up and like be able to teach every single person that comes into our studio so that means that as teachers it's our responsibility if we want to be someone that teaches mixed level classes or group classes or advertises our classes as all bodies welcome or accessible or whatever that we need to have those tools in our toolbox to know how to work with people so that's really why diane and i created the yoga for all teacher training because we wanted to create like the module that most teacher trainings are missing I mean, we definitely encourage you to check that out if you would like an option for online training, in person training. Diane and I both lead workshops and retreats, accessible yoga leads trainings. Like, there is continuing education out there everywhere to teach you how to do this stuff. And even if you can't afford to take a training, Google it. Like, get online and put your own curriculum together. Like, there are so many resources online. Like, Diane and I have made. So many videos just between the two of of us um, that if you, you know, let's say you have a student in a bigger body and you notice they're struggling with sun salutations like Google sun salutations for larger bodies. You will find videos that teach you how to modify and personalize that for them. And another thing is, if
1: we could get away from using the term "all levels," because there really is no such thing as an all levels class. I was talking about this with a friend of mine who's a yoga teacher yesterday, that we perhaps need to just categorize certain classes. Not every class is for everybody, and it's really, really, really difficult to create that. So perhaps we have a level one class, which is it's still a you know it's still a good um, challenge of 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 a class, but the poses will be something that are a little more simplistic. I have gone to class, an all levels class where we're like okay everybody let's run to the hand let's run to the wall and we're going to do handstand. I don't think handstand belongs in an all levels class. I believe handstand belongs in an intermediate or an advanced class. Or everybody's doing shoulder stand. I don't care if you don't like it and blah 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 whatever dogma the teachers got going on. We're all doing, you know, shoulder stand. That is not an all levels practice. And I often find that all levels practices doesn't suit the true beginner. And people show up to in these classes and become completely overwhelmed, because let's be honest, as the teacher, we tend to be teaching to the majority of the room, and when you put an all-levels class out there, you're going to get a lot of intermediate students, so I think we need to also start reframing the way we talk about our classes. If you want to teach an accessible class, it has to be a level one class where, when I say level one, I mean the poses are, are your standard level one basic poses. We're not doing all kinds of stuff that is inaccessible to all kinds of people. I just want to get that in there.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that, and I think there is, like, a lot of weird pressure on yoga teachers to have all their classes be available, like, for everyone that wants to come, and I don't know if that's just because, like, it's hard to run a studio and fill classes, because there's, like, 25 zillion studios in every city, or, like, where that pressure is coming from, but I agree, like, I think that there's something to be said for creating intentional space for... A beginner class or a chair class or, or a
1: basics class. Like right. a, it, it still can be a challenge. I don't want to off-put everybody that says, you know what, when I, when I used to label my basic class, I would say we are going to do basic traditional yoga poses that are available for a beginner or advanced beginner. If you want something more of a challenge, then come to the level two class where we will be doing uh, poses that are a little bit more physically challenging so that people know when they show up exactly what's happening because there's nothing worse than offering an all levels class and you get 90% of your class who comes every single week three times a week and are able to do everything and then you get three people because it says all levels who've never done yoga before or are practicing with a disability to come to class and then try to navigate this space I mean it's going to happen a lot of the time but at least if the class is properly labeled a level one class a beginner class a raw beginner class a gentle class people know what they're coming for and you're less likely to get People with no yoga experience or who need extra help in a class showing up at an all levels class when you know good and goddamn well the all levels class is an intermediate class. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, you're not doing
0: anybody any favors. So definitely, like, be clear in your um, objectives for the class that you're setting up. Be clear in your class description. Don't just say level two, but talk about like what that means, like what type of poses they can expect. Maybe there's a prerequisite, like you need to be able to get up and down off the floor without assistance, or you must be able to safely practice um, inversions. Like, I don't know what, you know, your criteria would be, but be clear about that when you advertise your class. And then I think, you know, the thing that I want to emphasize about, you know, what is an accessible yoga class? You know, the teacher, yes, should have like the knowledge to be able to work with folks um, and provide like modifications and variations on poses, but then like really incorporating students who may be practicing at different places. Like let's say we have some folks who stay in the chair while others get down on the floor. That's a really, I think, advanced skill um, to be able to teach that and make it a cohesive experience for everyone. So it's not like, okay, everybody's going to do like the real yoga pose and then there's like the less than chair pose over here, which is how it kind of comes off sometimes. So um, if that's interesting to you to uh, on how to incorporate um, folks who might not be practicing the same way into group classes. Um, that's what the accessible yoga training is all about. And we also cover a lot of techniques on how to, you know, creatively come up with those poses in the yoga for all training. I'm just going to like plug those over and over again, because that's the whole reason that we created those trainings is because there are so many students who, could be better served if we just have a few additional tools as teachers knowing the modifications is one thing but then understanding how to create community and really hold space and like make
1: your students feel Um, or help your correctly, like implementing them in a way that feels organic. Yeah. I see that all the time. It's almost like, here's a block loser. That kind of, (laughs) right. To hold that space is very, very challenging. And not to say that you can't do it because I also find that teachers are hesitant to take any additional training on accessibility because they think they're already accessible. Oh, I already know this. Oh, we already took this in my teacher training. I already know this. And then you show up to their class and you're like, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, Yeah, no. You put accessible on this and uh, I, you can't get a wheelchair through the door. Or I love it when there's an all-level accessible class anywhere in Toronto because you have to climb up two flights of stairs. There's not a yoga studio on ground level in Toronto that I can yeah. find anyway. One of
0: the things that you just brought up was like kind of not only knowing um, how to teach modifications or variations on poses, but how um, to teach them in a way that doesn't imply hierarchy or that lets students practice at different places without one being like the best, the only true yoga way that will get you into yoga heaven. And then like everything else is like a consolation prize. So I want to talk about language a little bit. One of the things that, you know, Diane and I discuss a lot in the yoga for all teacher training is the power of language. You know, the language that we use as teachers is one of our most important tools that we have. And that the way that we teach adaptive practice or personalized practice can really change the experience for the student. You know, on the one hand, the way that it's taught a lot that I see is like, okay, we're going to come into, you know, this pose. And so we start out teaching from like the most extreme end range of motion with the bind and the foot behind our head or whatever. If you can't do that, then like release the bind. And if you can't do the bind then put your hand at your waist. And if you can't do that, then like, just go home because you're a complete loser that can't practice yoga. Like, and I think that's how we hear it as humans, right? Because we are sort of trained to hierarchy and to rank things and give things value. And I think that If I could give one tip to yoga teachers about the way to teach adaptive practice that will make the biggest impact on empowering your students is to remove hierarchy from your language. Mm. So rather than teaching from the top down where there's an implied like full expression of the pose or like the best way to do it or the real yoga, Mm -hmm. teach progressively, which is to teach from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. So rather than um, doing the fanciest version of the pose and then subtracting things or offering a prop as an afterthought, teach from a place of stability and foundation first, right? like. What are your feet doing? Where's your pelvis? Where's your spine? Is all of that safe and aligned? Okay, now we add on the fancy stuff like lifting your arm or lifting your foot or taking a bind or whatever it may be. That way, like if you progressively teach from the bottom up, everybody can feel success with the first way that you introduce the pose. And then if folks want to take it further or be more challenged, they have those options available. Looking at our language and the way that we teach is a really big way to bring in accessibility and let students feel empowered to make a choice about their practice, you know, rather than like, oh, I feel like a loser because I can't make the shape the teacher is saying to make, you know, we can give them different places to opt in or to work, and that can really make a difference for people. Anything you want to add about that, Diane?
1: I'm really open to that whole idea of of the way we approach the pose. I've always been taught. I was really lucky. I studied with a woman named Betsy Downing when I was an Anasara teacher, and she had this whole progressive way of doing things, and very much in the warm up. If we were going to do something like half moon, very much in the warm up, we would do half moon from table, like almost like a um, a variation of spinal balance or a mm-hmm. variation of uh, side plank, and that became the half moon. And we just worked with that from the beginning, and then by the time we got to half moon there was half moon at the wall, half moon with the block, half moon on the chair or, like, and there was opportunity for people to just play with half moon in all kinds of ways. And then, what I like to do in my class is encourage people to try it all kinds of different ways. And I always teach from the, the bottom up. So, remember in the warm up, we did it this way. So, you can play with it. And remember, we also played with it on the chair. And remember, we also played with it on the wall. I find that my, cl- my yoga classes, when I teach publicly, are more like individual workshops that last 75 minutes than they are like a flow class that goes on and on. You know, because I always used to say, when I'm back in the day, I always used to say, the only way to learn anything or to feel anything in your body or to make peace with your body or to get into this practice is to get out of the flow. Because I think just constantly flowing through the asana practice doesn't help. It doesn't help you actually identify how this feels in your body because you're not there long enough. So I think uh, the language is everything. Telling people that we are progressively making our way to something that looks like this. It may not look like this for you. It doesn't have to look like this for you. But language is everything. Which has that power to either empower us or to humiliate us, so we have to be mindful and careful and use our yoga when, when we use our words speaking
0: of language, you know one way that I think we can be more accessible as teachers or as studio owners, people that are creating this kind of culture of yoga is around our marketing and so by marketing, I mean everything from you know the class descriptions which we already talked about to you know, the website for your studio, your bio as a teacher, the photos that you use on your flyers or your website or whatever, you know, if you're noticing that you're not getting as much, um, let's say like everybody in your class looks the same, mm. <laughs> you're not getting any diversity of shapes or sizes or ages or genders or abilities in your classes, One of the reasons that may be is because of the way that you're marketing it. So I think that, you know, yoga marketing, basically uh, the images that were shown to represent wellness or yoga often tend to be who Diane and I like to call yoga Barbie. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's generally someone who is white, thin, young, you know, traditionally able-bodied, cisgender, female, Mm -hmm. signifiers of wealth, like all of those things, right? And so... There's nothing wrong with Yoga Barbie. Like she deserves to move through the world and her body and be respected the same as any human being. But, you know, if we're only shown that one representation of what wellness looks like or what yoga looks like, or if I go to every yoga studio website in my city and only see stock images or real images of people that look like that, and I'm not that, then that sends a subtle message to me that I don't belong there. I think that it's important that if you... That you truly represent, Um, let's say if you're a studio owner or a teacher that's building your own website or whatever, um, that the images that you use on your flyers, on your website, on, you know, your business card, like whatever, um, represent the people that you actually work with or maybe that you want to work with if those people aren't showing up yet.
1: Yeah. Powerful thing that I did when I owned my studio was stop using stock photos and actually hire a photographer to come in and shoot a class because I had people call me up and go, the woman in the photo looks like me. And I said, the woman in the photo is me. So I think that's, Super, super powerful. I'm really loving looking at Instagram these days because often I keep thinking, I keep think I see myself in all these posts. I'm like, I don't remember doing this. Oh wait, that's not me. And that's really exciting to see people who look like me. That you, you cannot put a price on what it means to see people look like you doing the things that you want to do. I can't tell you how important that is as a person of color in a larger body. I can't tell you how valuable that is and how that can shift the perspective for so many people.
0: Totally, because you know, folks that don't fit into kind of the traditional standards of beauty which is lay is right on top of yoga marketing and yoga Barbie when we don't fit that like we don't really get to see ourselves represented in a positive light in most you know mainstream media we have to specifically create those images or seek those images out and so to see yourself represented in the context of wellness or fitness or like on a yoga website that really does open your mind to say, like, oh, well, maybe this is for me, and so it can be super powerful. I would say, like, if you can't, you know, afford to hire a professional photographer, like, iPhones take amazing pictures these days, and so, like, definitely get professional photos if you can, but if you can't, like, Get folks together, you know, in your studio or at the park or, like, whatever space you have accessible to you
1: and get a friend to come take some photos. So or they- a photography student. If you have a college nearby, a college town, they always need extra credit stuff. So that's what I did the first couple of photo shoots. I hired a photographer. Well, they had they did it for their project. They came and took pictures at the studio. So that's another way you can do it is if you have that, if you have those resources in your area, find out if they need a project. And they'll often just come out for the practice.
0: Yeah. I think that's fantastic. Um, and I would say too, you know, I've had a lot of yoga teachers, um, say to me like, well, I'm afraid to like put my own picture on, you know, my flyer or whatever, because you know, if people I'm see me, they're <laughs> not going to want to practice with me because I'm
1: fat or you know, whatever. Or I yeah, so, I, I had those feelings for sure. I had those feelings.
0: And I would say that those feelings are valid and I understand where they come from because we're socially conditioned that, Our bodies aren't as valuable as Yoga Barbie's body, but there are people out there, I'm just going to tell you this right now, that will practice with you and want to come to your class because you're fat or because you have a disability or because you're black or whatever. There are folks out there who are like, desperate for representation of themselves and also want to be with a teacher that they can relate to. You know, I've had a lot of yoga students come to me who are in larger bodies that say like, I would never practice with a thin teacher because they just don't get what it's like to be in my body.
1: Or Or they said to you that I started practicing yoga because I saw you practicing yoga. That's another one. Yes.
0: So just don't discount the impact that you can have by just showing up and being authentically yourself. It can really open up Um, people's minds to maybe participate in a practice that they thought was not accessible for them before, just because you showed up in the body that you're in. So, I wonder if there's anything else that you want to discuss about um, accessibility, Diane. I can go on about this, like, all day, but I want to <laughs> let you have the opportunity. Yeah, to- I've just
1: been in- interrupting you whenever I get a chance. I'm like, oh, I've got a point. I know. <laughs> I know that this is your your jam. I know you love to talk about this. But I think if you have any additional questions about accessibility that we didn't cover, let's put it up and send us a question, and we'll be happy to answer it in our next podcast. I want to only give you a little tidbit. I don't want to give it all away. Mm-hmm. But- some of it back and so yeah let us know i think there's lots of ways to be accessible we've mentioned language we've mentioned where you're teaching your classes but i also think representation is everything so i know it's super super scary but don't be afraid to put yourself out there because honestly my studio was struggling you know mediocre for a long time until i put my actual students on my on my advertising until I talked my students into it because a lot of them were very uncomfortable being seen as potential yoga models. I called them a yoga model and I gave them a t-shirt and they were all about it. And once I started using those photos, my studio was one of the busiest, most successful studios in Windsor because people could see themselves. And we had a nice cross-reference of people of different bodies working within the studio. And I think that for me was the biggest part of accessibility is being able to see myself represented at my local yoga studio. So if you have any other questions about accessibility, you know where to find us. We're happy to do yet another podcast on this. This is always fun. So I want to thank Amber. This is your expertise. I just sat (laughs) back and listened whenever I could, because I know you love to talk about this, but please um, make sure that you check out our podcast, please subscribe, rate comment. You can find us on wherever podcasts are found. And don't forget to send us a question and we'd love to answer it. You can find Amber at bodypositiveyoga.com or you can find her at Amber Karm's Official all over her social media. You can find me, Diane Bondi, at Diane Bondi Yoga all over social media and DianeBondiYoga.com. And we're excited to be here. So we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.